0: Okay, I think we're we're ready to go. Okay, um, well, thank you um, very much for joining us today. Um, I want to just give you a very brief introduction as to what we want to do and um, why we've sort of organized this. Now, I don't want to burden you with any more webinars that you're subjected to um, these days. But I thought, you know, we thought this one would be important because um, Trinity has now set up a legal observatory for COVID-19. And the focus we have is on human rights and COVID-19. And here is our idea, which is that when you think about human rights and COVID, you think about it as a bunch of people who are opposing the government for asking them to stay at home. And that's why they're exercising their human rights. But I think that's a very weird, bad way to think about how human rights may interact with COVID-19. In fact, the way we think about it is that if you think about human rights as negative liberties and positive rights, whereby you have liberties to to do a few things, such as the right to speech and the right to association, and you have positive rights, which is where the government needs to look after your right to life, um, then most, of our concerns during this time in different phases can be shaped using the language of human rights. And this is pretty much what we want to do. One is we want to impose the language of human rights on all our interactions during the time of COVID-19. But what we will see from the speakers today is that it's fine to just call everything a human right, but it's not like that in practice. So the effectiveness or the contours of a right to a great extent are shaped by the legal system that you are operating in. And which is why um, our focus today is to first have um, uh, Dr. Donna Lyons, who's at Trinity, who will give you a little background on human rights instruments and how they apply to COVID-19. And then we have two speakers. We have Professor um, Gapur from Hungary who will be talking about the Hungarian situation and then we have um, Alok Prasanna from India who will be talking about the Indian situation after that. And the reason we want to do this is because we want to see human rights in practice when it comes to COVID-19 and how it works. Um, So I I don't want to take up any more of your time. Could I give the floor to Dr. Donald Lyons and then um, we'll move on to Dr. Halmai and Alok Prasanna. Over to you, Dawn.
1: Thank you so much, Surya. Thanks for sharing. Um, also, thanks to Maeve and Ronan, as well as, as Oren for organizing this. And of course, to, to Gabor and Alok for participating. So I'm going to share my screen um, with you. I'm going to get my slides up. Um, and to all of the attendees, you're very welcome. And I'm looking forward to discussing this with you. So. Hopefully you can you can see that now. I'm just going to maximize the slideshow. Hopefully this is working. Okay, so this is a first for me. Um, I'm just waiting for this to maximize. Uh, Surya, could, can you see this as, as in the slideshow function? Oh, there we go. Hopefully you can at this stage. Great stuff, thank you. Okay, so looking at human rights um, in the international framework, Primarily, that will be my angle for the presentation and I'm really looking forward to hearing the country case studies uh, in relation to Hungary and India um, later on in the discussion. Just to give you a flavour of the international human rights framework as it might relate to the COVID-19 pandemic. So the international human rights framework as we know it now um, basically dates back to after World War II. So human rights have existed in various forms for many centuries. But the UN was established after World War II in the midst of that major crisis um, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was one of the first international human rights instruments um, to be published. Thereafter, we see the two 1966 covenants, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Thereafter, there was a proliferation of other international human rights treaties, like Convention against the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, Convention against the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and there there are many of those. Then there are regional human rights frameworks, which are not operational within the UN, um, but they're still multilateral because um, they involve a a variety of states operating together under the same framework, but usually within, within a regional area. So for example, the European Convention on Human Rights, which was adopted in 1953, the American Convention on Human Rights adopted in 1978, and there are others. So rights restrictions are always necessary when um, applying human rights within a particular human rights instrument. Um, They might need to be balanced in terms of individual rights versus individual rights, or they might need to be balanced against collective interests. So that is always a necessary facet um, of the application of a human rights interest. We see rights restrictions in practice on a very large scale basis in the COVID-19 pandemic context. So, examples of civil and political rights that have been restricted potentially are rights to movement association, right to assembly, in some cases, right to privacy with um, contact tracing apps, right to liberty at times, then social and economic rights um, also potentially engaged here, right to education, to health, work, social welfare and housing. Um, So there is this distinction in international human rights law between civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights. Um, At times it can be grey as to whether the distinction is true or not, um, whether it bears out in practice. But but in in the early days of the international human rights framework, that that was a clear distinction that was made. So just to, um, to provide that context before I look at the covenants in more detail. Okay, so as I said, limitation is a facet of all human rights instruments. Derogation is something a little bit different. So, what's the difference between limitation and derogation? It's possible to limit rights uh, in a, a non-emergency context. So, in in any context in the application of an international human rights instrument, even in peacetime, it will always be necessary to engage in a balancing act um, because it's impossible to protect all rights um, to the fullest extent simultaneously. There will always be conflicts between individual rights um, and other people's individual rights as well as individual rights versus collective interest. Derogation is a bit different. So derogation is something that is possible in time of emergency. So for example, it's Sometimes possible within national constitutions to declare a formal state of emergency and therefore for um, the government to have greater powers. So, for example, in Ireland under Article 28.3.3 of the Constitution. Uh, it's possible for the state to declare an emergency uh, where there's war armed rebellion. Um, so that hasn't happened in the COVID context, but it is possible, and the state has done it on two occasions in the past. And that would allow the government then to pass legislation that would otherwise be held to be unconstitutional um, and it won't be subject to constitutional scrutiny. In other cases, some states will declare a state of emergency and it will be possible to, for the executive power to pass um, legislation by decree, so to rule by decree. Um, without the formal restrictions of of, um, Parliament and the processes that are involved there. Then there are regional derogations. So it's possible to derogate from some regional frameworks of international human rights. So Article 15 of the European Convention on Human Rights being an example of that. um, And 10 states have entered derogations to the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, Article 27 of the American Convention on Human Rights is another example And this particular provision mentions suspension of rights. But in practice, it's the same as a derogation under Article 15 of the ECHR. So 12 states have entered derogations to the American Convention. And then my focus today will be on the International Covenant. So Article 4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights provides for derogation from that particular covenant. So yeah, 14 states, as outlined there, have entered derogations to the ICCPR. In terms of the overall um, number of derogations to the various international treaties mentioned here, they are unprecedented in terms of the the number for a particular situation. So COVID-19 is is particularly relevant when we're talking about derogations. So I think it's an important moment for derogations and support to discuss what this means in practice. and how it might affect uh, future emergency situations that give rise to the possibility of derogation. So because we're discussing international issues here rather than national or regional, I'd like to look at the two 1966 covenants in more detail so they are Multilateral, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, has 173 states parties. The International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights has 170 states parties. And there are two treaty monitoring bodies which are responsible for overseeing the implementation of the two covenants. So in the ICCPR context, that's the Human Rights Committee, and in the ICESCR context, that's the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Um, In terms of what the sources of law are, um, and this is is kind of an interesting point when we're talking about whether international law is is law as we understand it domestically, and that might be a debate for, for another day, but in terms of the sources of law with these two covenants, we have the primary instruments. We have general comments which have been written by the human rights treaty bodies, which are kind of a fleshing out of the particular provisions within the instruments. Um, there are individual communications on provisions within the, the covenant, and there are concluding observations, which are the result of um, the treaty body doing a periodic review of an individual state's implementation of the covenant. And the concluding observations document is the document which is drafted by the treaty body um, in recommending better implementation or further implementation of the Covenant domestically. And then there's also quite a new process, which is the Universal Periodic Review process is um, something that the Human Rights Council engages in with each state um, globally on a four yearly basis in determining the application of all of the state's international human rights obligations. Um, every four years, so that's a a separate source of law. So a couple of examples then of where these sources of law come into play in the context of communicable diseases. So for example, in 2015, the Human Rights Council um, commenting on the situation in Liberia said that the state should take actions to lessen the economic and social effects, which have been the outcome of the Ebola epidemic. I'm commenting on Chad. In 2009, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights noted that the state should increase public spending on health and take measures to prevent and treat HIV, um, AIDS, pandemic and other communicable diseases. So. Obviously, the treaty bodies are interested in communicable diseases and the state's approach to these. Um, and it'll be interesting to, to discuss then, to what extent can a state derogate from its obligations in order to tackle a health crisis? What are the remedies um, in the international human rights context? And again, the question of whether international human rights law is law, as we understand it domestically, is it the same? It's, it's a little bit different because the remedies available Um, Are They they are occasionally available to individuals in that individuals can take cases to the human rights treaty body where their state has ratified the relevant optional protocol. And the optional protocol to the ICCPR has 116 states parties, but to the ICESCR only has 24 states parties. So, So the remedies for individuals Um, are not necessarily as widely available, but what is available is for the treaty bodies to engage in this regular review process of the state's implementation of the treaty bodies, sorry, of the treaties. And um, this is maybe what you would call a form of of soft law or law by nudge, whereby the state will be encouraged on a regular basis to implement fully the, the covenant or the convention as the case may be. Um, So it is very different um, to regular domestic law in that we're talking about states um, holding obligations rather than individuals holding obligations and the states won't be subject to criminal prosecution if they're found to be in violation. Um, It doesn't have international human rights law, it doesn't have the same type of enforcement mechanisms as domestic law. Uh, but it is there and it is still very influential in terms of um, state's behaviour in response to the recommendations that are made by the treaty bodies. So it's it's worth considering and discussing. Um, in terms of the two international covenants then, so the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is a 1966 document, came into effect in 1976. The types of rights that would be engaged within this covenant in the COVID-19 context, um, there's a list there, but the primary ones we're talking about here really would be free movement, peaceful assembly, right to free associates So articles 12, 21, and 22. It is possible to derogate from the ICC so the So article four of the covenant notes that in time of public emergency which threatens the life of a nation and is officially proclaimed, states parties may take measures derogating from their obligations under the covenant to the extent strictly required by the exigencies of the situation. And article four is elaborated on in the Syracuse principles, um, but importantly, the general comment number 21 provides um, a more recent elaboration on the requirements of article four, and this was introduced following the 9-11 terror attacks in the United States. And some of the important principles that come out of this document, um, apart from a reiteration of what's required within the, the language of Article 4, is that where a derogation is entered, any measures that are taken by the state in order to pursue the legitimate aim Um, that they are dealing with at that time, whatever the emergency is, the measures that are taken in pursuance of that aim still have to be necessary and proportionate. So a proportionality test is applied um, and they still have to be non-discriminatory. Also, there are certain rights that are non-derogable. So certain rights can be derogated from even if a formal um, notification of derogations entered. So the rights to life prohibition and torture, slavery, legality or retroactivity in the criminal law, right to recognition for the law, right to thought and religion cannot be derogated from. Those rights which can be derogated from will still be subject to a proportionality test uh, and the implementation has to be non discriminatory. So it's interesting to look at whether uh, derogation has any advantages in practice because if we were to look back at some of the primary rights here, most of these rights, um, particularly the ones that are that are derogable, so um, rights that would be subject to a proportionality test in an emergency context, even in time of peace, it is possible to limit those based on um, certain exceptions that are laid out in the wording of these particular articles. So, um, usually there's there's a provision for limitation within these articles in accordance with the law, um, and in furtherance of, for example, national security, public order, public security, public health, and that's relevant in the COVID-19 context, um, or in furtherance of the protection of public morality or the rights of freedoms of others. So when we talk about that type of language in um, an individual provision of a covenant the committee tends to use a proportionality test when looking at um limit standard rights limitations in peacetime Uh, and non-discrimination is a facet of the covenant more generally within article 2 there is a standard non-discrimination clause so non-discrimination and proportionality are actually factors in peacetime as well as in time of emergency so the question really is what is the advantage of a derogation and i think it's in a way it's a historical feature of the covenant um, perhaps it encouraged states to to sign up at a time when they were still apprehensive about their obligations and sign and, and maybe uh giving away some of their state sovereignty by signing up to a international human rights treaty um, but But also, I'm not sure it would have been clear to states at the time that a proportionality test would have been applied in a state of emergency. So an Article Four derogation doesn't provide the state with total leeway um, to act in any way that it wishes, even in a time of emergency, will still be restricted by these primary requirements. Why have states entered derogations then? It's possible that states hope that there would be some amount of extra leeway when their derogations are being reviewed or when when their actions in response to the crisis are being reviewed. It's actually unlikely that the Human Rights Committee would provide any extra leeway because they have outlined these requirements of proportionality and non-discrimination in various documents. Um, But also, they released a statement at the end of April of this year, so very recently, in response to the amount of derogations that were coming in. And they reiterated the importance of the reinstating of the principle of normalcy, so insofar as possible, ending the emergency as soon as possible, and noting that if if it's possible to operate within the standard limitations clauses of the various, of, of the covenant, then it was preferable for states to operate within those limitations clauses rather than formally derogating or formally declaring an emergency Um, and again referring to the principles of proportionality and non-discrimination, even when a derogation is entered. So it's actually unlikely that the state would Um, Be given any extra leeway, but it will be interesting. I think it's an important moment for derogations It will be interesting to see what the committee does say when they're reviewing these derogations and that will happen in the periodic review processes So yeah again just is derogation advantageous? It's not really clear that there is any advantage Perhaps in the context of a right to a fair trial. So that's the only Right, um, that doesn't actually have uh, a standard limitation, a standard limitation wording within it, um, and that is is derogable. So that's the only right, maybe, that is provided with a, a less stringent standard in the case of emergency. But it's actually not a particularly common right to um, to invoke for derogation purposes. The most common rights that are so that states seek derogation from. Our movement, assembly, association. So, I'm not sure there is any particular advantage to, to entering a derogation, but this is really something to watch and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And then, briefly, just to give you a, an idea of how the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights works, there is no standard derogation clause in this, probably because the requirements of the covenant um, are, are less. Stringent. So the concept of progressive realization, for example, in Article Two One, allows a state to implement the various the various rights and requirements um, to the maximum of its available resources, with a view to achieving progressively the full realization of the rights. So the, the obligation on states um, are in theory less. Um, less pressing and less immediate than you might find in the ICCP or type of rights we're talking about here, be right to work, education, standard of living, which includes housing, right to health, of course. Um, Okay, and just to, I'll probably wrap up now in a couple of minutes, Um, just to note in general comment number 14, which is an interpretation of the right to health in article 12, uh, the committee has specifically noted that issues of public health are sometimes used by states as grounds for limiting the exercise of other fundamental rights. Uh, So conscious that it is possible and it's it's common for states to sometimes invoke a public health crisis in order to perhaps uh, unjustifiably limit certain rights and they noted then in that comment, even if a public health emergency is, is declared by a state then the state will still have to act uh, proportionately to the the legitimate aim pursued and in a non-discriminatory fashion. So the same key principles are at play here. So if we're talking about states of emergency um, and the advantage of derogations, ultimately state of emergency versus peacetime operations of a state, the same types of principles actually come into place. We were talking about the importance of proportionate responses uh, and non-discrimination in in the application of those responses. So types of scenarios where you might find violations, I mean, this is something that we will await decisions of the various treaty bodies on, but um, one could imagine the Human Rights Committee, for example, finding a violation in the case of the Philippines, where President Duterte did announce that if there were violations of the lockdown restrictions, um, that the the military and the police could operate a shoot-to-kill policy. Now, this wasn't something that was actually implemented in practice. There have been hundred thousand arrests or thereabouts in the Philippines, but other strange responses have been implemented by the authorities there like um, locking people in in cages for violation of the restrictions or forcing people to sit out in the hot sun for many hours Um, children have been locked in coffins for several hours for example or they have their their hair has been cut and they've been stripped and forced to to walk home so when we're thinking about you know what might be a disproportionate response um, It is is very possible that 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 type of extreme example would be considered by the Human Rights Committee to be disproportionate. Similarly, in Iran, uh, about 35. Um, protesting prisoners were were killed during protests, and doctors have allegedly been prosecuted for contradicting government figures on number of deaths and number of cases in the COVID context. So that, again, might be a disproportionate response. In terms of what might be a a non-discriminatory or a discriminatory response, the case of Uganda might be a good example where uh, an LGBTI shelter was raided. On the 29th of March, um, on the basis under laws against physical distancing, and prosecutions were brought. Um, but actually, this wasn't the type of um, response that the government was it was engaging with. More generally, it was something that was occurring um, in the case of, of LGBT, sorry, LGBTI people, um, as a probably as a continuance of the anti-LGBTI community in Uganda, which is kind of a historical um, consideration in that country. So there are plenty of other examples we could talk about, but um, I don't want to go over time, just examples of where the Human Rights Committee may indeed find violations based on the fact that they are disproportionate or discriminatory. Um, But it will be interesting to see what happens when the committees do consider um, the derogations that have been entered. And I think it will be really interesting then to hear about um, Hungary and India um, and what has happened in in the wake of the COVID-19 situation in those countries. So I'll finish up there. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Thank you, Donna. Um, It's, you know, I thought that was quite remarkable because when COVID-19 hit and just about every country passed an emergency legislation, and when people hear the word emergency, then the first thought that might come to your head is: Does it mean there's a derogation of human rights? And you know, is it is it something special? And I mean, I think I'm grateful to you to for clarifying to us that that the word derogation is not as glamorous as we might think it is. That you know, we still have to uh, make legislation, and they'll be subject to the proportionality test as well. Um, so you know, with that, you know, I want to hand it over to Professor Almay now who will talk to us about the Hungarian situation and the response to um, COVID-19.
2: Thank you very much and, and thank you very much for the kind invitation. Uh, let me start by a disclaimer uh, saying that I'm not an international human rights scholar. I mostly deal with comparative constitutional law and as you will see, I will deal with, with a very, Specific case, uh, uh, Hungary, which is, on the one hand, a member of the European Union, which supposed to be a value community, uh, respecting uh, rule of law, democracy, and first of all, fundamental rights. Uh, On the other hand, uh, Hungary, in the last decade, became a very proud illiberal member of this uh, uh, European Union. Whatever it means, uh, the, the government of Hungary is proudly announced uh, that, that they uh, aim at having an illiberal democracy uh, from 2010 onwards. And they enacted a, a brand new constitution in 2011, which the prime minister Orban called as an illiberal constitution. So I'm emphasizing this because if we are talking about international uh, human rights uh, requirements uh, and standards uh, and derogation from from them, uh, you in most of the time you you will find countries as as the mentioned countries, uh, Philippines, uh, Iran, or other countries, and including illiberal democracies within the EU, uh, whatever uh, strange phenomenon it is within the the community of liberal democracies having someone who is is, uh, 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 proudly illiberal Going against the values, so in those countries, the governments usually do not care about derogations at all uh, they, they do not care about violating uh, uh, fundamental human rights uh, because they they used to violate uh, rights uh, from from the very beginning uh, onwards, so in that respect. Uh, I do not think that, in the case of Hungary, the the, the standards of of international human rights instruments is a very useful standards. Uh, the Hungarian government did not bother to to make any derogation while introducing the the emergency situation. And by the way, uh, talking more generally about emergency situations, as Donna pointed it out. Emergency uh, uh, is is a toolkit for for very, very special uh, treatment of even human rights. So I'm afraid that the international human rights uh, toolkits are not really, really uh, useful to to, uh, deal with very special instruments of emergency powers in different countries even in liberal democracies, but even more so in illiberal democracies. So uh before I go into the details of the Hungarian government's uh pandemic responses, let me very shortly uh describe the the starting situation. So when when coronavirus hit Hungary uh actually in the beginning of March, uh Hungary uh, was already uh, 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 an authoritarian system uh, I do not go into the into the details of of, of uh, defining illiberal democracy which is in my view an oxymoron if something is illiberal it cannot be democracy so I consider the Hungarian uh, Constitution system as, as an, an autocratic system in the very beginning with a so-called uh, electoral uh, 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 competitive element uh, because the, the first Orbán government in 2010 came to power uh, due to a democratic election. But the second and the third election of the same government in 2014 and 2018 was due to some some electoral frauds uh, the OSCE uh, monitoring body declared those two elections as not fair elections so i do not even could say that hungary is is a competitive uh, 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 authoritarian system anymore uh, the outcome of an election is is very much certain, which is against any kind of democratic principles. Anyhow, so this was the the very starting point when when the crisis hit. Again, this kind of illiberalism meant, on the one hand, dismantling all the checks and balances of the majority power of the the government. uh, And on the other other hand, also, dismantling all the guarantees for fundamental rights. The Hungarian government started with with dismantling uh, freedom of media altogether in the very beginning of of the end of 2010 and ever since there is no free media uh, in Hungary. They also started very early with dismantling uh, freedom of religion by deregistering about 300 uh, registered churches in 2011. So the starting point uh, has been that there, there were no uh, fundamental rights guaranteed, and the institutional guaranteed were, guarantees were also dismantled by pecking the Constitutional Court, uh, very much uh, uh, dismantling the independence of the ordinary judiciary, and so on. So when the, when the the crisis started in, in early March, after a, a couple of uh, cases of coronavirus contention, uh, the government already introduced an emergency power. Uh, the emergency power was introduced, even violating the illiberal constitution of, of the system. But I do not go into these details. Uh, Certainly, these kind of uh, uh, emergency power allowed the government to to, uh, even get rid of the remaining uh, checks and and balances uh, and dismantling uh, the remainders of of fundamental rights. I go uh, into those uh, details a little bit later. Uh, They also uh, used a a lot of power, emergency power, to discredit uh, not only local governments, but opposition parties in the the parliament. But probably what is even even, uh, more important, they introduced this uh, uh, emergency uh, situation without any limits. Uh, the government introduced and uh, the two-third majority, which the government party I- enjoys in the parliament, actually uh, voted in an Enabling Act uh, at the end of March. The Enabling Act actually, without any kind of limitation, time limitation, allowed the, parliament, allowed the government to uh, uh, issue any kind of governmental decree changing any possible laws, uh, suspending any institutions, uh, suspending any uh, 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 laws, uh, and so on. Let me mention a couple of, of uh, grave violations of, of uh, human rights, fundamental rights, by decrees. Uh, one of the first uh, uh, decrees uh, suspended Uh, the so-called general data protection regulation of the EU. Uh, You may be aware of of the functioning of the European Union uh, on the basis of primacy of EU law. So if a member state suspends the EU law altogether on a certain uh, area, that means that EU laws primacy does not apply anymore. And this uh, uh, applied to data protection, uh, freedom of information, uh, freedom of expression. uh, Altogether, one of the first uh, decrees also introduced into the criminal code uh, regulation about about a new crime uh, on on, uh, denying the effects of the pandemic. Uh, distributing false information, fake news about the pandemic, and uh, more than hundred such cases uh, were brought to the to the law enforcement agency's attention uh, with a possibility of up to five years imprisonment for for just denying certain certain uh, 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 facts. Uh, which, needless to say, meant the dismantling of the remainders of freedom of expression uh, altogether. No journalist uh, dared to to say anything after this uh, uh, measurement. Uh, Another very, very disturbing situation was that the government, with a decree, uh, 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 allowed the military to occupy all the hospitals uh, throughout Hungary and occupy about 150 uh, different companies, partly private, partly state-owned companies. The government also uh, naturalized certain private companies uh, with the the, uh, pretext of of, uh, fighting the uh, uh, coronavirus. so those are the probably the main main measures taken during this uh, emergency situation. And one more thing, uh, uh, you you may have thought that this emergency uh, situation was was necessarily because the parliament uh, was not able to work. Actually, just the contrary, the the parliament was in session all the time. And let me mention only three. Uh, uh, parliamentary laws, which were enacted during this this emergency situation, which all relates to uh, uh, international human rights. The first one to uh, ban the the registration of gender change. The second was the not not ratification of the Istanbul uh, Treaty by the Hungarian uh, Parliament, you know, what is the Istanbul Treaty uh, all, all about. And the third one was an omnibus law at, about even, even giving the possibility of the secret service to switch off the internet of every individual uh, in case of any any cyber attack. Uh, if, you ha- if, you, if I have a couple of more minutes, I did not check the, the time. So on March, this- 26, uh, the Hungarian government again proudly uh, declared that they will, will end this emergency situation by the end of June. And for that reason, they introduced two new laws. One of the laws is about to repeal the emergency uh, power of the government with the condition that the government itself will end the emergency situation, which is a tricky constitutional situation, meaning that that the parliament, not the parliament has a government, but the government has a parliament. But anyhow, the most disturbing uh, issue is the other law, the the bill uh, the government introduced, which was about 247 pages long. And this law, which actually accepts some some legal experts as myself, no one really uh, uh, was able to to even read. So this, uh, uh, again, omnibus uh, bill introduces a new kind of emergency. This is the so-called health emergency situation, which the government can introduce without the authorization of the parliament. So uh, while the Hungarian government is going out to the, to the international uh, audience, even asking some, some apologies for those criticizing the previous uh, emergency law, saying that we get rid of all the emergencies, so we are clean. But this new emergency law, which allows the government to, to introduce any kind of measures by degree without the authorization the the specific and concrete authorization uh, of the parliament uh, means even even a worse situation than we are we are uh, in uh, during this this uh, current emergency situation so uh, let me finish by by trying to to characterize the the development of the Hungarian Hungarian autocratic system throughout the 10 years and then after the the pandemic. So if I would characterize the the Hungarian state as an autocratic state but very much uh, bound by by legal legal, uh, uh, rules especially by its own constitution. After the pandemic, we are in a situation uh, when even this legally bound autocratic system is not working anymore. This is a totally unbound system. And if you remember Carl Schmitt arguing uh, about the Weimar Republic being a legally Legally bound uh, autocratic uh, system, and from uh, 1933 onwards, after the Ernächtigungsgesetz uh, uh, for Hitler, this became a legally unbound uh, situation. This is the the current situation in Hungary. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks so much, Gabor. It's, uh, it's it's uh, as, as as you put it, the. Coronavirus was a godsend for Hungary, it seems, to consolidate its position and and legitimize its flouting of European rules even further, as it were. Um, so, you know, and I think, you know, on that note, I'd like to pass it to Alok because I have a feeling he has something similar to say about the Indian situation, despite it not characterizing itself as an illiberal constitution.
3: Uh, thanks surya uh, and uh, thank you all for inviting me to this to speak at this particular uh, webinar uh, it's my pleasure and uh, when surya first invited me to speak i said oh so you'll be giving me about 3 or 4 hours to talk about india and he said no you have 15 so wrap it up quickly uh, i'll try my best to uh, make sense of what has been going on in india in about 15 minutes so without going into too many specific in- incidents and events i'll try to talk about two broad themes. And that is why I've titled my talk as Lawless Lawmaking and a Supine Supreme Court. We have a situation where, you know, just, and it's a great point to take off from what Gabor is speaking about, that even though Hungary tried to introduce laws, in India, everything is being done by presidential or bureaucratic decree. And that has had consequences of its own. The other aspect that I want to, time willing, to speak a little bit, is that we have a Supreme Court, which has pretty much given up its role as a constitutional body. Uh, that for us as legal scholars, we are talking about what the Supreme Court is doing and not what the Supreme Court is saying. This puts us in a very tricky position. We are used to reading judgments. We are used to critiquing judgments. We are used to critiquing opinions of the court, but we don't know, and we're still trying to make sense of a court, which refuses to hear cases. Which adjourns cases till they become meaningless. And what is driving that impulse is something that I want to be talking about a little bit today. So let me very without any ado get into my presentation. I will very quickly share my screen. Yes. Okay. And going into the. right. So, briefly. um, Okay. So what the uh, the broader theme of my talk is that. What was happening in India for the last decade or so has gotten accelerated because of COVID-19. And there are three themes, which I think are relevant when we talk about India. One is that lawmaking has become less participative and more executive, with very little space for debate and discourse. The second is that institutions have sort of withered on the vine. They are no longer capable of doing their jobs as was uh, understood under the constitution and under law, and they are unable to do their constitutional duties. The third, and which is something that I won't have time to discuss, but it's nonetheless important to flag here, there's an aggressive majoritarian push to redefine the mainstream and push communities into the margins. And this is generally what is called the Hindu relating to the religion, Hindi as in relating to the language, and Hindustan as being a place for Hindus who are Hindi speakers. So this is something that, you know, This will come up again and again as I speak, but I don't want to focus too much on this for the moment, because I think that's part of a, 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 it will be an entirely different discussion, but I want to talk about the first two specifically. Okay, Uh, as I've said, this is what I'll be talking about. Uh, But very briefly to start with a little bit of the constitutional and political context prior to COVID-19. We are currently in the second term of the National Democratic Alliance, which is being headed by Narendra Modi. Uh, The first term in 2014, So, three major interventions that I think have continued to have an impact in the way in which constitutional and legal developments in India are taking place. Uh, The first is demonetization, which was the withdrawal of about 85 to 90% of India's currency overnight without any warning, with like four hours of notice, the government said all 500 rupees and 1,000 rupees notes are no longer valid. Now, this was an example where we saw of a kind of rule of law breakdown. Where over the 50 days in the government took to try and sort out the situation, there were 74 executive orders issued. Now, this is an absurd number. First of all, demonetization was not done through law. Keep these things in mind when we talk about COVID. It wasn't done through a legislation. They found some provis- provision in some law which enabled something to this effect. But the exercise itself was completely chaotic Where everything was done through executive orders, which used to change in the matter of hours. They used to change in the course of a day. And if you look at the numbers, there was 74 and 50. Sometimes there were more than one order being issued in a day, which caused complete chaos and each of them dealt with so many different topics that by the end of it, nobody knew what was going on. There was an excessive centralization and when I say centralization, I mean it at two levels. If you think of India a little bit like the European Union, uh, it's a much think of it as a much more powerful European Union with the central government as the EU itself, uh, where the central government withdrew a lot of powers for itself from the state. But also at the central government level, all decision making was no longer collaborative between various departments, but completely centralized within the prime minister's office. So you have two levels of centralization which took place. The third is interference in judicial appointment in the Supreme Court. Now, in India, we have a situation where the judges pretty much appoint themselves. And that has meant that even though on paper, the executive does not have a big say, it is in fact a very opaque, non-transparent system where nobody really knows why someone has become a judge. This has in fact made it easier for the government to say we don't like this person, we don't like that person, we don't want them to be a judge, or we don't want this person to be a judge at this point of time. So you have seen, we have seen a much greater interference in judicial appointments. The second term, which started in 2019, has only accelerated some of these things. Uh, Kashmir special status, India's only Muslim-majority state lost its special status. Kashmir was one of 10 states which had some kind of a special status. Kashmir lost its special status. The Babri-Masjid dispute was decided in favor, I mean, it was a broadly communal dispute between Hindus and Muslims. It was decided in favor of Hindus by a judgment, which cannot really be described as a judgment, more of like a settlement, you know, like between two unequal parties. It's a settlement overseen by a judiciary. You've had uh, these letters that you see here, you have a process by, uh, you. you uh, there's an introduction of a new legislation, which threatens to redefine the idea of citizenship in India itself by imposing a religious test. Uh, citizenship in India is not a constitutional uh, uh, definition. It's defined by law and this law wanted to redefine citizenship to exclude Muslims from certain countries from even applying for citizenship. Uh, or rather uh, to uh, applying on a certain procedure for citizenship It led to massive response, and which was cut short because of the response to COVID. And as a result of civil society uh, protests against the the CAA, which is the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, you had riots, communal riots between Hindus and Muslims break out in the city of Delhi for the first time in more than 30 years. And very clearly, the government took the side of the Hindus in the riots, basically trying to pin the blame on Muslims and so on. But this was the context in which COVID entered into India. You had a Hindi, Hindu, Hindustan imposing majoritarian government. There is a disregard for constitutional norms and processes. There is an extreme centralization of power where bureaucrats decided members of parliament implement. Uh, I think Gabor put it well that you know uh, instead of a, a parliament having a government, it is a government which has a parliament. And you had uh, weakened constitutional institutions, especially the Supreme Court of India comes covid uh, 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 hits india the first few responses to completely ignore it and hope it goes away the response happens sometime late in march which is about one month too late for india as a result of which we are we have i think uh, the sixth or seventh most cases in the world deaths are fairly low because of the population profile being largely young uh, but this is it's a been a complete messed up situation i'll try and explain it a little bit more under our constitution public health is the responsibility of states Whereas it's the duty of the center to look at, uh, you know, uh, the spread of epidemic diseases. Unfortunately, none of our laws actually allow for tackling a nationwide epidemic. In India, because of the size, any epidemic nationwide is pretty much a pandemic. But unfortunately, we don't have a legal framework which will allow us to do this. But instead of addressing this and going back to our example from demonetization, the government found a provision in a law which might possibly potentially help them and decide to run with it. Uh, in India, there is a word called jugad, which is like making do. I mean, there is no equivalent in any other language. It's called making do. And this was an act of legal jugad You just pick something which sounds approximately right and run with it, even if it is not the best tool. So you use the National Disaster Management Act which was actually enacted to fight natural disasters like earthquakes, landslides, floods, tsunamis, and so on to deal with a nationwide pandemic. A provision of this law effectively was taken to try and run every single part of India from the central government as opposed to leaving it to the state governments to manage the situation. Although on paper, there is supposed to be a National Disaster Management Authority overseeing this, and there's a National Executive Committee overseeing this, In reality, the entire exercise was run out of the Prime Minister's office and the Ministry of Home Affairs. A very influential minister of the present government runs the Ministry of Home Affairs and that has taken over the decision making. What has been the impact of this? You had again, as I mentioned with the demonetization, you had 94 orders, guidelines, addenda letters in 68 days. This is legal chaos. This leads to the kinds of rights violations that you you can't even imagine. Uh, one of the biggest tragedies has been that this has created such chaos and confusion that migrant workers have tried to walk hundreds of kilometers back home. Imagine someone trying to walk from Paris to Hungary, right, Uh, because there is no means for them to get back home and the cities where they're living in have made no provisions to provide for migrant workers or suddenly without jobs, without food, without shelter because an overnight lockdown was imposed by the government. Uh, there has been no systematic consultative process, it's ad hoc discussions with chief ministers of states, uh, without really discussing with fellow cabinet colleagues, no in- involvement of elected representatives, even at the ground level, you know, like, I'm sure, uh, uh, down to the level of corporate or council who are local level representatives, there has been almost no involvement of them, and you've had a top down decision making, which has meant that everything is decided in Delhi and left to the states to try and implement. These are the consequences of this, has been one of the largest scale human rights violations in this country's history. Uh, and this is, it's not, you've had instances where parts of the country have been under lockdown. You've had instances where parts of the country have experienced human rights violations. You've never had a situation where the country as a whole has had to undergo through this trauma. I mentioned that COVID is not fully under control. I have mentioned that migrant workers, and this is the most heartbreaking thing that you will see. Imagine a ref- internal we have had an internal refugee crisis. That's the only way to describe this. Uh, it is something that the government is unable to handle. the government did not foresee and the government has no clear idea how to respond. On the other hand, you had two other unnecessarily bad outcomes. What is essentially a public health emergency has been treated as a law and not a problem. One of the points that Donna sort of made was that you can't use a public, public health to try and you know, make further rights violations. Unfortunately, that is exactly what has happened in India. The government has used the, it has treated this public health emergency as an, uh, as like essentially non-order problem where the policeman on the street with the baton is the final first and last mode of uh, implementation of this particular mechanism. We've also had a communalization of the discourse where Muslims are being blamed for quote, unquote, the spread of COVID. This has meant that there's a lack of trust in the government and responses are also being tailored on the angle of religion. Um, I don't have too much time to go through the Supreme Court, but let me try and quickly, briefly summarize what has happened. Uh, and if maybe there are questions, I can go into this in some detail. Even when rights violations have been brought to the court's notice, the court has adopted a don't ask, don't tell approach, which is that don't bring it to us, we won't even look at it. Uh, they have not l- looked at any issues of uh, of migrant workers. What about relaxing something? This is a this is a huge court. So India has Supreme Court at the national level and High Courts at the state level. High Courts have been very active in trying to address some of the rights violations that have taken place in the respective states. But shockingly, the Supreme Court seems to have imagined that it can completely ignore what is happening in the country and move on as if nothing has happened. It's it's barely functioning in the first place thanks to COVID. But we have a situation where the Supreme Court does not hear cases at all. We have have a Supreme Court in India, which uh, which first response is to try and dismiss a concern out of hand. Second response is to try and adjure it and hope it goes away. And when really push comes to shove, maybe write a judgment which actually does something. Uh, This this is a feature which has been uh, sort of commented upon by a lot of people. I'll try and share some resources at the end of the discussion. But we are in India, we're living through an emergency situation that is not quote unquote an emergency. Our constitution actually provides for three different kinds of emergency. And uh, as Gabor ended his the end part of his speech to invoke Karl Schmidt, we are in an emergency situation which was not envisaged in the constitution. It, it is still a little bit bound in the sense that powers are being drawn from a law, but those powers are being ex- extended and used in a manner which is way beyond the law to come to a point that Donna made right at the beginning, which is about how even any, abrog- any derogation of rights have to be in the framework of a law. What we have is pure executive abrogation of rights. It is not in any manner by uh, through a law passed by Parliament, and it has ensured a large-scale deprivation of rights. This has also meant that remedies available against this breach have been very limited. And it is because of the fault of these institutions. They have been unable to respond or rather don't want to respond. And again, that's a completely long discussion. When they've responded, that's the point. When, whenever somebody close to the government has been affected, uh, you can see Arnab Goswami there. He's someone who's considered close to the government. When he's been affected, the courts have rushed in to defend. But if someone who's been opposed to the government, like Gautam Navlaka, they have been very hands-off and said, too bad, you have to go to jail. So this is the something which you know uh, tells us that there is something fundamentally wrong with the way our institutions are responding to the situation. If I have to summarize it, it is a large-scale breakdown of rule of law and constitutional and the constitutional order in India has been pushed to the brink. And this is without counting the two cyclones and the locusts which we are already suffering with. So, bringing that on that very happy note, I will end this discussion and I will wait for your response.
0: Thanks very much, Alok. It's uh, it's always refreshing to hear um, what the current government is up to in India these days. But it's uh, what we do get. I mean, if if I don't want to um, try and summarize the discussion we've had so far, but I, I want to highlight a couple of things. One is, you know, Donna started off the discussion by saying that just because we might call something an emergency doesn't mean that will lead to a derogation of human rights, because in the international framework, what we understand as a derogation is actually not something that that can take over human rights and there is no reason or justification for um, any restrictions that might arise. And within that framework, you know, it's very difficult for a country like Hungary to operate, because. You know, they, there is no recognition of the priority of rights when it comes to a situation such as COVID. Um, rather, you know, COVID is instrumentalized for its um, purpose, as it were. Um, and then, you know, as, as Alok put it, that even in India, which has, you know, the, the longest written constitution in the world, you still don't have to pay much attention to it and the separate emergency provisions provided therein when it comes to the declaration of a medical emergency using some unusual um, legislation which was never um, looked at. Um, I, there's one thing which, you know, it's, it's sort of like a um, a question which I've been mulling over for the longest time, which is when we are thinking about COVID and when we are thinking about how we are going to respond to it, it's in a very state-centric framework that we think about it in terms of one powerful government which can do something about it. And sometimes, you know, it's worked all right. And in some cases it's not. And, you know, as Alok pointed out, what COVID has also highlighted is a change in federal relations as it were between Um, the central government and states within India and suddenly there is greater seizure of power by the central government Um, and it's sort of legitimized by the fact that this is a medical emergency as against a religious emergency or some other sort of emergency as it were. So I do think you know that both separation and division of powers um, shape the contours of rights when there is um, an emergency such as, such as, or something that's declared um, an emergency, such as um, COVID. Okay, so you know that's that's something you know I, 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 it's something that's been troubling me, which is how, when we're talking about COVID and rights, we're actually talking about the division of powers and the separation of powers. Um, so you know that to me is 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 quite interesting. Um, I I do have a question, and uh, this is to Alok, um, if it's if it's all right with you. Um, It's from Rahul from the School of Psychology, and he asks, I wonder if Alok can say a bit more about how we can legally understand India's internal migrant activities, like uh, the response of people to the COVID-19 laws, such as that of internal migrants breaching the lockdown, shown that the relations between citizen and the state are more fluid than otherwise. So, you know, he's inquiring about the internal migrants in India.
3: So internal migrants in India are this are invisible to the state. Um, if I can just take a couple of minutes on this, there is no mechanism for the government to know uh, how many peop- how people are moving across the country. Um, this data is supposed to be available in the census, but they did such a bad job of it in the last census that the data was out only in 2019. By the time it became in, uh, entirely irrelevant, well, we had hoped that 2021 census would give us some more details. Uh, but uh, what we have seen is that both the state and the central government had absolutely no—they hadn't even thought about them. They had no idea as to how many internal migrants are there, why why are they moving from one part to the other, and where they are. And today, just before this uh, webinar started, uh, I was reading an article where even local cops did not know that there were internal migrants living just around the corner, uh, who had, and they had no idea that these set informal settlements were around. Uh, And then they were surprised when the uh, people from these settlements came forward saying we are starving, we have no access to food or medicines and so on. So, which is why I think they were invisibilized. They were invisibilized in some way by the state's refusal to even think about them or discuss their existence uh, entirely. It was assumed that you are where your election ID card says you are, not where you actually are and where you need the resource of the state to help you. So, in making the decision to impose the lockdown, the government simply ignored this. This is where the importance of democracy comes in. If you had spoken to the local leaders, if you had spoken to local authorities, if you had spoken to the councillors, the corporators, the lowest tier of government, any one of them would have told you, look, you have to make some provision for people who have moved into this part of the country from the opposite end of the country because they are not going to be able to survive if they don't get their daily wages. And this is where this absence of democratic accountability comes in when, when you look at some of the decisions taken by the governments. Uh, that you 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 assume that you are able to decide everything on paper, sitting in Delhi, without having to undergo uh, take, undertake undertake this hard task of consultation, of debate and discussion, even in an emergency situation, even in an emergency situation, and it makes a difference. The states which have followed this process of involving local people have been able to manage COVID much better than states which have taken this. You know, in India, we, we think, think back to the Mughals who used to issue these orders, issue these decrees or farmans to the rest of the country or to the rest of the state. And this democratic process was what was left out in decision making, which has led us to this situation.
0: Thanks very much, Alok. um There's there's one question which we've been we've had for a bit, and I thought I'd just ask the panelists what they have to think about it. Is that there has been a lot of commentary about how COVID has has revealed the inequality of society, as it were. And from from the presentations today, we see that COVID has also revealed the the actual nature of the legal system, which uh, we operate in. And so I guess the question which, um, uh, which, which was put forward to us is, is there any aspect of the response to COVID-19 that has generally surprised you? And you wondered where did this come from as against what was quite predictable? Uh, if, if or if't uh, yeah, sure. you know.
2: yeah if i may may jump in uh so needless to say there is no no surprise from my side, so this government started this this policy ten years ago and and uh, they 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 never let a a possibility uh, go when they they can even even further uh, dismantle uh, democracy so covid was was such kind of opportunity to 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 go go even deeper and regarding uh, equality the the hungarian uh, uh, system is is based on a kind of social darwinism from the very beginning uh, orban even after the 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 coronavirus uh, breakout emphasized that our society is based on work so all all those who are who are uh, not able to 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 deal with the the problems, the government is not there to help so they not they did not even bother to 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 raising unemployment uh, uh, numbers uh so, equality certainly uh, uh, increased during the, the the virus, and of course, those who were were worst off uh, were touched upon by the virus the most. And the government uh, certainly uh, did not did not uh, do anything about that. The only thing they they care about is the kind of of uh, middle class people, uh, they they even introduce some some benefits for for uh, larger families, uh, fearing from from demographic uh, 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 kind of uh, kind of disaster. So, uh, but this is a very nationalistic uh, approach they always emphasized uh, that we, we need to keep Hungary as, as, a, as a, uh, uh, a society being, being uh, 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 consisted of, of Hungarians. Uh, by the way, Hungary still has an emergency since 2015, a migration emergency, which was kept by the government in every half a year last time in early March, just after the COVID uh, entered into the country. So this is a kind of homogeneous, the perception of a homogeneous nationalist society, which the governments build up and not, not uh, uh, being care of any of those who are touched upon by the, by the crisis.
3: And just to add to that, if I may take half a minute, uh, I think, again, the reaction of the government, uh, I don't think surprised so, uh, so much, but I think the scale of the problem was a was a surprise. And I say scale of the problem, I mean the scale of the need to take care of migrant workers. And I think, you know, I, I've lived in Bangalore long enough, and I thought that I knew approximate demography of the city, uh, the numbers that we are seeing, the kind of difficulties that people are undergoing has completely shocked me in terms of its extent. So, in, in, in terms of, I think, um, the, how the response of the government, went, it was, it was definitely going to fail, but I guess the magnitude of the failure was what has surprised us, especially in terms of how brutally affected the weakest and the most vulnerable part of our population have been.
0: Thanks, Look,
1: um, <laughs> Sorry,
0: Donna, please, please go ahead.
1: Sorry to interrupt you there. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, actually. Um, so thanks for asking that. I think it's, it's very important in that, some some of the responses are actually revealing in terms of the historical patterns that were already there. So it, I, I would agree with the other speakers. I wasn't terribly surprised when Looking at the various responses of government. So, as Gabor was saying, many of the, the very obviously disproportionate responses are by states that are derogating, um, that have historical patterns of human rights abuses anyway. And then there are situations which uh, get a bit of press, like, for example, in Croatia, um, you might have seen recently 30 asylum seekers were crossing the border from Bosnia Herzegovina into Croatia, uh, and the, the police allegedly spray painted their heads with crosses and told them this would cure you from coronavirus, and they were beaten um, and driven back to the border. Um, And this got press as a kind of a COVID-19 response, but in fact, when you look into it in more detail, these types of human rights abuses at the border between Bosnia-Herzegovina and Croatia are happening all the time. So in fact, it's just a perpetuation. Um, of a, a form of discrimination that's happening anyway, and it's uh, it's being reported in the context of COVID-19. Um, similarly, when we look at responses in in Brazil, the UK, the US, where you know it might be said that the economy is being prioritised over over health, um, the health of the community. These were patterns that were taking place uh, before any of this hit, um, and as. Yeah, as Gabor was saying, places like Iran, the Philippines, Uganda, they had historical patterns of abuses, and so you know it's interesting to see they're not even derogating from from the international covenant. Um, so I wasn't terribly surprised, but um, certainly as luck was saying, so sometimes it can be surprised by the scale of the problem rather than the emergence of the problem.
0: Um, well, thank you very much, Donna, and. I believe, you know, that's all the time we have today for the questions that we've received. Um, and, you know, I just want to thank all the panelists for taking the time out and coming and discussing this issue with us today. Um, I do hope, um, you know, we will continue this discussion on human rights and COVID, hopefully not indefinitely, but for some time to come. and. Um, well, you know, I think a good way to start off the discussion is that let's think twice before we call something an emergency and do things in that light. Um, I do think that's that's some that's a take-home message for me at least. But thank you very much to the panelists, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you, thank you,
1: everyone.
3: thank you. Thank
1: you it's pleasure.
3: You. Bye.